Well, I invite you to turn with me to Nehemiah and chapter 8. And as you turn there, I take just a moment to say that it is a privilege to be here. I've been in Albuquerque before, but never in this building. I've been with uh, Pastor Ryan before and uh, with Trent, uh, but not in this context. And it's a privilege for me to be included along with uh, Don Carson and David Helm. And uh, these men are friends to me and encouragements to me. One of the things in moving away from Scotland that was fearful to me was that I would leave all the friends I'd ever had behind because I had none here. And uh, um, God has been more than kind to me in, um, in, in making up that lack. And uh, tonight is, is an evidence of that to me and a benediction. So, uh, with no more ado, let's uh, look at Nehemiah chapter 8. I will read it as you follow along. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Messiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashum, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. If you're looking for children's names. Uh, <laughs> <clears throat> and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kelita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, they helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of fathers, houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. 
And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. From the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Thanks be to God for his word. A brief prayer, an old Anglican prayer. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. For your Son's sake we pray. Amen. If I were to ask you about your church, whether you're a pastor or a member of the congregation, to respond in one sentence, telling me the real reason why you as an individual go to that church building and gather with God's people on that day, I wonder how many of you would answer as follows. In order that I may hear and submit to the voice of God in his word. If someone were to visit your church or my church, would they deduce from the structure of the service that all who have been involved in the planning and conduct of the service are fully convinced that the Word of God does the work of God through the Spirit of God in the people of God? Would it be clear to a visitor in coming in that the preacher is the servant of the Word? and that together, preacher and congregation, are convinced of this, that what God has said to us is of far greater significance than what we have to say to God? Would it be obvious to all that the congregation has been assembled under the Word? Leadership, of course, is vital in that. And those who have presided over congregations that have been marked by such a thing have stood out all through church history. For example, in the 18th century, John Newton on one occasion addressed his congregation in Olney as follows. I count it my honor and happiness, he said, that I preach to a free people who have the Bible in their hands. To your Bibles I appeal, I entreat, I charge you to receive nothing upon my word any farther than I can prove it from the word of God, and bring every preacher and every sermon that you hear to the same standard. In other words, he left his congregation in absolutely no doubt 
that they were assembled under the word. And that, of course, is what comes across clearly as we read Nehemiah 8 together. I'm going to assume a level of understanding regarding all that has preceded it, or most of what has preceded it, uh, in terms of the historical context. Um, a brief précis would be as follows, that at the end of uh, Chronicles 36, we have the account of how Cyrus, around 539 B.C., uh, conducted a, a policy of repatriation. Uh, Cyrus absorbed the Neo-Babylonian Empire into what was to become a vast Persian empire. And he determined that people who had been scattered from all over the place and gathered under his jurisdiction should be encouraged to go back where they came from. And included in that, of course, were the Jewish people. And so we discover, under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah, that the people of God who had been scattered and who were exiled are now reassembled in this way according to God's purposes. And the perspective of Nehemiah comes across very clearly in his prayer, which is recorded for us in chapter 1. If your Bible is open, you can look at it right there. Uh, the word of uh, the circumstances that are presently in Jerusalem reach him, uh, we're told. His response is great concern and sadness. Uh, he mourns over the predicament, and uh, then he calls out to God in prayer. And if you look down there, uh, verse 7 or so of chapter 1, he says, in confession to God, we have acted very corruptly against you. We haven't kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. In other words, we just haven't done what we said we would do. Uh, we know what we are supposed to do. We know what you said. And I confess to you today, God, he says, that we haven't done it. Remember, he says, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. So he is rehearsing the history of the people of God and how it is that they find themselves where they are. Then, of course, you know the story. He uh, commandeers all the equipment and manpower that is necessary, proceeds to go up to Jerusalem, uh, exercises very skillful leadership, assigns people to their places of responsibility, and so on. And by the time you get to the end of uh, chapter 6, uh, the project, the architectural project at least, was finished. Verse 15 of chapter 6, so the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. A quite remarkable providence. And in chapter 7, he then addresses issues of practicality and issues of security, and then a roll call, which is there for us in chapter 5, in verse 5 and following. I, if you allow your eye to scan that, you can see that while I was brave enough to attempt the list of names in chapter 8, I'm not about in public to try uh, chapter 7. And uh, it, it really is a, a real challenge. It's a reminder that while we are absolutely convinced that all of the Bible is inspired, 
we have to acknowledge that every part of the Bible is not equally inspiring. And I, I, I think that uh, chapter 7 is a good one for saying, let's go immediately to chapter 8. In fact, I think 20 years ago when I did Nehemiah, that's exactly what I did. And, um, but you see, the real predicament in Jerusalem, the real predicament was actually not structural damage to the walls and the gates and the temple precincts. The real predicament in Jerusalem that in that was that in that destruction, the glory of God was being dragged down into the dusty hillsides of Judea, and the name of God was besmirched. And insofar as these things were representative of God and his glory, they needed to be addressed, and so they were. And the real need of the people was not actually the security, physical, that they would now enjoy, secured in the precincts that were now theirs. But the real need of the people was that they would listen to and submit to God's law. And so what follows in chapter 8 uh, should be understood in that light. And indeed, chapter 8 needs to be viewed in the light of all that has happened before amongst the people of God. In fact, in, in many ways, it harps back all the way to Sinai. It harps back all the way to the giving of the Ten Commandments that is recorded for us in Exodus chapter 19 and 20, and to which Moses makes reference uh, in Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy chapter 4, as he is uh, addressing the people, and I want just to point this out to you because for your own study, it's important to get this. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, he is recalling what had happened on that day when the people were assembled by God's command. And so he tells them, you shouldn't forget the fact how on that day, verse 10 of Deuteronomy 4, on that day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, and the Lord said to me, gather the people to me. That was the instruction from God to his servant. Gather the people. Assemble the people to me. I want you to bring the people together. And let me tell you why. That I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on earth and that they may teach their children so. And as you read on in that for your homework, you will see that Moses is recording the fact that God made very, very clear that when they were scattered, it was an indication of his judgment, and when they were reassembled, it was an indication of his mercy. And uh, my good friend Christopher Ash has performed a tremendous service for many of us in doing his own overview of the Bible story, in which he uses this picture of the scattering and the gathering as the way in which to understand the unfolding drama of God's purposes. So that just as the gathering in Exodus, recorded again in Deuteronomy 4, was, if you like, God's idea, we discover that the exact same thing is true when we come here to uh, Nehemiah and to chapter 8, because Nehemiah says that it was God who put into his heart the whole notion of assembling the people. This is back in chapter 7. My God put into my heart 
to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled. So in other words, in the same way that he had said to Moses, I want you to gather the people here, he says to Nehemiah, and I want you to gather the people here. And so once again, we have this recurring pattern which runs throughout the Bible. Now, they're gathered by God, they are gathered to God, and this uh, gathering here is, if you like, representative of previous gatherings and is a foreshadowing of the great ultimate gathering that God has planned and purposed, which we will come to before you all fall asleep towards the end of my address. <laughs> now, I'm going to leave you to pursue anything further along those lines. Uh, that is my homework assignment to you. I, I, as my art teacher used to tell me, Tommy Walker in Ilkley Grammar School in Yorkshire, when I used to say to him, Mr. Walker, I can't draw a chair. I'm sorry I can't draw a chair. Please draw the chair for me. And he used to say, Alistair, I'll get you started, but I'm not doing it for you. And in many ways, that's the role of your pastor, to get you started, but he's not doing it for you. And if you don't yourself become a student of the word, you're crazy to think that you're going to grow in maturity and understanding as a result of showing up for one 40-minute teaching from the Bible a week. It is not going to happen. The people were assembled by God, they were assembled to God, and they were assembled in the company of one another. Now, let me summarize uh, the, the balance of the chapter with four very simple headings. First of all, it is obvious that they gathered expectantly, that they gathered expectantly. All the people gathered as one man into the square, and their expectation was that Ezra the scribe would bring out the book of the law. Probably all of the um, early things that were, are there in the beginning of uh, uh, our Bible, maybe expressly Deuteronomy itself, whatever, they knew that they needed to hear from God. And they gathered as one man. I suppose if you had been able to look down from, uh, from a satellite and had seen the assembly, it would almost have looked like one gigantic person. There was a unity in their coming together. They weren't a random collection of individuals. They weren't people who had wandered into the square to see what was going on. They were there as a result of God's grace and goodness to them. Uh, the unity of their gathering is a mark of every proper gathering of the people of God. And I suppose if we'd mingled in the crowd, to come back to where I started a moment or two ago, ago and we said to them, why are, we said to individuals, why are you here? Uh, then they, we would have got perhaps all kinds of answers. I, I, I like to do that when I go into visiting congregations. I often ask people, so why, why do you come to this church? And someone would say, well, my son's in the youth group. Someone says, they've got a great nursery. Somebody says, I like the music. Somebody else says, I don't like the music in my other church. And uh, very seldom does somebody actually say, I, I come here in order that I might hear the voice of God through the word of God from the lips of the servant of God. The perspective of gathering together expressly to hear from God with the expectation not that someone will provide instruction from the Bible with a few practical applications that you can work over on your drive home, but rather that the voice of God will be heard as the Bible is taught 
in a life-shaping, life-changing encounter with God. They weren't there with notebooks trying to fill in the blanks at the end of the page. They were there expectantly saying, you know, it's been a while, but we do need to hear from God. Bring out the book. Now, Ezra was the perfect man. Ezra, we're told in Ezra 7, had set his heart to study the law of God and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. There you have it. There's the prerequisite for the pastor, for the preacher of the Bible, one who has set his heart to study God's word and himself to do what it says and then to teach it under God's directive. It's very important, isn't it? If you're going to have an encounter with God in the assembling under the word of God, to have two things definitely. One, an expectant praying pastor, and two, an expectant praying congregation. So that when the pastor preaches, he may not be fantastic, he may do his best, but as Spurgeon says, you can keep your same pastor, but if you will pray for him, when he preaches the same messages, you will discover that God actually does things. That's not an argument for poor pastors. I'm so so tired of, uh, of people explaining that uh, Mr. Re- Mr. Reynolds is, uh, and I hope he's not here this evening, but, you know, <laughs> I ask him, I say, so is, is Mr. Reynolds, is he, is he effective in teaching the Bible? He said, well, uh, he's a very nice man. <laughs> I said, I didn't ask you if he was a very nice man. I asked you if he can teach the Bible. I mean, is that your response when you go for cardiothoracic surgery? <laughs> Are you any good at surgery? Well, I'm a very nice man. You fly out of Albuquerque on one of those tiny little planes. I don't care how nice the guy is. I want to know if he can fly. (laughs) Ezra was the man. Ezra had the book. The people had the expectation. They gathered expectantly. Now, we daren't miss the fact that uh, understanding is a key emphasis here. You see that? In verse 2, who was present Well, the men and the women, that's significant because in certain of the gatherings, only the men would have been present. In the strictest terms at certain feasts, only men were represented. In fact, when you go to 13 and following, it's the heads of the households who are present in the the balance of the chapter. But it was men and it was women and it was all who could understand what they heard. Now, there's... Let me just say a word of encouragement to young pastors who don't, want, who, who, who don't want to do what they need to do when you've got crying babies in the room. And that is to say, I'm happy for this baby to remain here, provided you can convince me that she is able to understand everything that she's hearing. For that is the prerequisite for attendance, the ability to understand. If you can't understand, then it's not going to be very profitable to the individual or to the one who holds her or to the person sitting directly behind her. Now, I didn't mention that because of the baby here, but just in (laughs) generic terms. This is not my church. It's none of my business, but I just want to tell you. It makes perfect sense, doesn't it? 
that if you're going to have didactic material, the people present should be able to understand, and that those who can't will have a day when they do. But until then, bye-bye. <laughs> now, what did he do? We're told that he stood. He didn't sit. He didn't lean on a stool. Apparently, he didn't just walk up and down like a traveling performer. He stood on a platform, on a wooden platform. I think this is really the only place I can find in the Bible where we have a pulpit. But they had built it expressly for the purpose. And they had made it for the purpose, and so he used it for the purpose. And so he stood up, and we we're told he opened the book. And he opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. What did he think? Was he a smarty pants or something? That he had to stand up above all the people? Six feet above contradiction, that's why I'm up here? No, he stood up there so they could see him. Makes perfect sense, doesn't it? And so they could hear him. I won't digress on pulpits, but it's fascinating to me to have this, this polystyrene thing here, this big plastic thing here with a drum kit in it. In the 21st century, we put drummers in there. In the 19th century in Scotland, we put pastors in there. <laughs> so that they wouldn't get out. But now the pastor, he's all over the place. It's the drummer that we put back there and, and hide him. Well... The expectation was directly tied not to the ability of Ezra, but to the book that he held in his hands. Somebody asked a question at lunchtime today when we were together as some pastors, and it reminded me of a quote from Luther which goes as follows. A preacher should have the skill to teach the unlearned simply, roundly, and plainly. For teaching is of more importance than exhorting. When I preach, writes Luther, I regard neither doctors nor magistrates, of whom I have above 40 in the congregation. I have all my eyes on the servant maids. And if the learned men are not well pleased with what they hear, well, the door is open. Good old Luther. They gathered expectantly, and they listened attentively. They listened attentively. That's what it says in verse 3. And all the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. Uh, some of you may have on your shelves books by a man called S.D. Gordon. I never met him, but he had a series of books called Quiet Talks on. Uh, presumably, he had a very quiet voice or something, but he had quiet talks on prayer, quiet talks on this. And when he spoke in England, I'm told that he would often ask the congregation, are you listening with all the ears of your heart? Are you listening with all the ears of your heart? The way in which we listen to the Word of God is directly related to what, how we benefit from the Word of God. That's why, for example, James, as he encourages people to listen to the Scriptures, he warns them that a couple of things will make it virtually impossible for you to benefit from the teaching of the Bible. One is a dirty mind, and the other is an angry heart. Get rid of all anger and get rid of all filthiness, he says. Because if you fill your mind up with nonsense and with filth and you come to worship, you'll find it precious difficult to actually absorb what is being said. And if you come to worship with God's people with an angry heart, angry with your spouse or angry with yourself or whoever else it might be, 
there will be a detrimental impact. And so the attentiveness is not simply the ability to retain what is being conveyed, but it is an attentiveness that goes to the very core of our being, so that as we preach to the hearts of people, it is, the, it is our hearts that respond. Now, it is quite challenging here, isn't it, that they were very attentive to the book of the law, because the gathering was lengthy. Uh, you will have noted from what the text says that uh, the, the book of the law was being read from early morning until midday. That's, that's a pretty long time. And uh, as some of you will have seen a little book by one of my friends, uh, Gary Miller, and one of his colleagues in uh, Brisbane, Australia. Uh, the book is on preaching, and it's called Saving Eutychus. You remember that Eutychus was the fellow who fell out of the, the upstairs when he was sitting in the window. And uh, under Paul's preaching, he fell asleep and died, and Paul had to perform a resurrection for him. And the whole thesis of the book is uh, that uh, most of us are able to accomplish as pastors in about 10 minutes what it took Paul a whole evening to do. <laughs> and the attention span of those to whom we speak, we're told all the time, is such that uh, the whole notion of uh, a monologue itself that has any longevity to it is, is just basically, in 21st century terms, a complete waste of time. But in actual fact, we preach and we teach, not because we believe this to be the most effective manner of communication, but because we believe it to be God's primary manner of communication. And that even through the apparent inconsequential nature of what is being done, again, in that weakness, in that apparent inadequacy, uh, we listen to and for uh, the Word of God. Those of you who know the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones will be familiar with his ability as a preacher and of his observations concerning preaching. I had the privilege on many occasions as a younger man to be present when he preached, and I still can hear him on downloads and things like that, as some of you will do as well. And there is no doubt that he was peculiarly gifted, and he preached for a long time. He said on one occasion that one of the marks of what he referred to as powerful preaching is this. Where there is powerful preaching, the problem of holding the attention of the congregation disappears. Now, he was referring to a kind of preaching that brings with it a consciousness, a sense of the presence of God. He was not referring to a certain style of preaching or a manner of delivery. He was talking about this dimension that is almost inexplicable. Because when you think about it, the very act of preaching is culturally neutral. No matter where you go in the world, no matter what language you speak, everybody understands what it means to sit and listen to someone speaking clearly and authoritatively and helpfully. You don't have to have gone to college to understand that. You don't have to have done postgraduate qualifications to sit there and listen. And the remarkable thing about it is that God uses the most unlikely people in order to accomplish his purposes. It's very nice of Ryan to mention that we've been on the radio for 20 years. No one's more surprised than me. I wouldn't cross the street 
to listen to myself preach. I have to do it, but I'm already looking forward to the next speaker. Because nobody knows how to preach. I don't think. And someone said, it's right that the task should humble you, but it is wrong that it should paralyze you. Again, Luther, we must make a great distinction between God's word and the word of man. A man's word is a little sound which flieth into the air and soon vanishes. But the word of God is greater than heaven and earth. Yea, it is greater than death and hell, for it is the power of God and remaineth everlastingly. Therefore, we ought diligently to teach God's word, and we must know certainly and believe that God himself speaks with us. They gathered expectantly. They listened attentively. Thirdly, they responded I think we can use the word properly. They responded properly. And if you allow your eye to scan the text, either now or later, you will be able to have a picture in your mind's eye of what is going on. As you look at these people, this large crowd, and it would be a very large crowd, their posture is an indication of their response, a response of reverence and of awe. And as the book is opened up and as Ezra blesses the Lord. The people answer, amen, amen, and they, they lift up their hands. I'm not going down this rabbit trail, but it's fascinating to me, as somebody who stands in front of congregations, to watch how and when people lift up their hands in singing. It's almost inevitably, when you get to the hook in the song, when you get to the sort of rising crescendo. And very seldom do I find people when we sing like, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus ever sent. It's in the people like, whoa, no, no, no. But why not? We were singing about the love of Jesus. What, are your hands attached to your glands? Are you actually, are you actually thinking? Or what, what is actually going on here? How, how, what did the people, they lifted up their hands. Where do you get this from? I, I think it's the psalmist. I spread out my hands to you. My soul longs for you in a parched land. It's like, it's like when your children reach for you. It's when they see you coming up the driveway and they want you. They long for you. They don't need a violin played in the background in order for them to reach for you. They don't need a rising crescendo to make it happen. It is from inside of them. I stretch out my hands to you. And as he blessed the Lord, they said, that's right. That's right. Let the amen sound from his people again. Gladly, for a, we adore thee. They bowed their heads and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Wow, posture again. And we don't want to overstate it, but we don't want to miss it either. Posture says something about us. The way in which a person walks into a room or wherever it might be says something about himself or herself. And the way in which we respond with the bowing of the head, what it means that they worship the Lord. And we're told that they wept as they heard. 
They wept. Now, they didn't weep because Ezra was a bad preacher. I understand that. At least I assume they didn't. No, they wept because they were cut to the quick by the word of God. Isn't that, and again, that's another great mystery in preaching, isn't it? And it doesn't happen in a small group Bible study. Because in a small group Bible study, you answer questions and talk to each other and everything. And it's very uncomfortable for people who don't like doing that. And you all know essentially what's going on. But when somebody preaches to a congregation like this, nobody except the individual and God knows what's going on. And the strange mystery of it all, that there is a divine dialogue that is conducted between the Spirit of God himself and the spirit of a man or a woman, so that the very same phraseology may actually be applied to correct or to rebuke or to encourage or to build up, even though it's the very same verbiage. Do you see, that's what marks this assembling under the Word of God as different from everything else. I can imagine this is saying, um, um, today's assembly is sponsored by Kleenex. <laughs> um, it, we, we've, we've, put, we've put Kleenex under all, all of your seats because we know you'll probably be cut to the heart by the word of God. As opposed to, we're glad you're here. We don't want you to be unsettled or troubled in any way. We want to make sure that you're having a lovely time, that you know that every day is Friday, and that we are here to let you know that your best life is out there in the coffee area as soon as we're finished. <laughs> There's none of that man-centeredness in this, is there? There's none of that. There's nothing of contemporary evangelicalism in Nehemiah chapter 8 that I can find except when you have the privilege of being gathered in an assembled congregation where people really recognize we are here to hear from God. If you go back and research Deuteronomy chapter 4, the distinguishing thing is that in the midst of the vastness of the display of God's might and his power, he's talking about the people being gathered to listen to him, to listen to him. The audible voice of God to the people of God through the word of God. So there's no applause here. The assembly does not end with like, hey, good work, Ezra. That was a nice one, you know? What's wrong? What's wrong with America? I mean, you can't, you can't let Netanyahu do his speech for clapping every two seconds. The, 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 the president's State of the Union thing is a joke. No, I'm not saying that the politics is a joke. That might be true, but I'm talking about the way in which it's done. <laughs> and now it's infected the church. What is this, a circus? You've got, you really got the polarization, don't you? You go some places like a jolly circus. You go another place like a crematorium. You don't know what to do. <laughs> That's not my problem. I, I got my own problems, but... Uh, I'm making it virtually impossible for you to do anything other than crawl out at the end of this talk. <laughs> Fourthly, and finally, you'll notice that they departed joyfully. They departed joyfully. You see, weeping for the night, but joy, joy comes in the morning. 
You see, first we need to meet Moses in the law before we meet Jesus in the gospel. First, we need to know how messed up we really are in order that we might understand how amazing God's grace and goodness is to us. That we are the wanderers, that we are by nature the scattered ones, and that in the mystery of God's purposes, he assembles us under his word in order that he might speak grace to us, in order that he might speak clearly to us. It's Charlie Brown who said on one occasion, I don't care how the day starts, it's how it ends up that bothers me. And there's a sense in which that's also true here. It was a long day. Look how it ends up. Look at the benediction. So he said to them, do not mourn or weep. All right? Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to the Lord your God. And so all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing. Well, that's, I think that's good. You know, Spurgeon talks about how, you know, five minutes after the benediction, you've got an indication of what really happened in the preaching. In fact, you don't have to wait five minutes. You just go five seconds. Because the average congregation at the end of preaching never sits down, never has a moment of reflection, never just sits and says, the way you would at a sunset, you would just, it would just make you sit down. Or as a result of some great, I just got to sit here for a minute. No, the average congregation, as soon as you said, amen, you could, just like, woo, gone. There's people who are high-fiving, go Browns, hey, let's go. Where are you going for lunch? What are we doing? What's, what kind of situation is this? Now, first of all, you guys are going to have to stop crying before you leave. That's number one, right? That's what he says. I don't want you crying anymore. And the Levites had to get them calmed down. They said, be quiet. Be quiet. The Levites calmed all the people. This is fantastic. And he told them, listen, the joy of the Lord is your strength, and the word of the Lord is your guide. That's all you need to know. You find yourself impoverished and wearied as a result of things. Your strength is found in the joy of the Lord, in the joy of acceptance with God. For the place of assembly in Jerusalem was the place of sacrifice. It was the place of identifying the presence of God and the grace of God. And here is the assemble in this context. They realize that God has put in place all of these things in order that they who are not worthy of entering his presence might be brought near by the blood of sacrifice. And the word of God, then, is going to be that which frames their lives. Now, we don't have time, and you'll be glad, which is usually a euphemism when somebody's teaching for, I haven't done this rest of this chapter in my study, okay? (laughs) (laughs) And I'm not going to tell you which part of that is true or false, but the fact of the matter is, when you read 13 on, You see what a revolution took place. And you imagine the fathers coming home from this assembly and their children are going, hey, dad, we are not doing that. What what do you mean we're going to put a little shed on the roof? What will my friends say? They're going to go, you are totally weird. What's up? You got a nice house. Why have you got a thing up there on the roof? What are you doing with that? Well, of course, if the fathers are unprepared to be fathers, 
and leaders, they may just send them off to a youth group somewhere. <laughs> but if they want to be fathers and leaders, then they're going to say, son, we're going to go do this together. And I'll tell you why. Because we met, and Ezra read the book. And those Levites with the unpronounceable names, they moved among us, and they helped us understand everything that was going on. Kind of a small group Bible study approach. And so we're going to do what God's word says. Well, what, what do we do in conclusion? What, what's, the, what's the takeaway? I mean, we're going to say, well, what, what are we supposed to do? We're a long way from Jerusalem, aren't we? And I'm surely not going to suggest that you, you build a little shed uh, up, up in your roof. Of course I'm not. Well, what are we to make of a gathering like this? Well, how, do you, how do you bridge the gap between uh, Jerusalem all these years ago and uh, Albuquerque all these years later? Well, the key to it, again, is in standing far enough back from the picture to get the big picture. To realize that the promise that God made to Abraham was that he was going to assemble a great company under him through his seed. Singular. That the Messiah would come. And the seeds of the ministry would then be promulgated in such a way that eventually there would be a company that no one could number. And so these Old Testament gatherings, including this one in Nehemiah 8, are an indication of the gathering that is ultimately going to be. They are, if you like, scale models of the real thing. And when you think about it in those terms, you begin to get an understanding of the drama that is conveyed by the writer to the Hebrews at the end of chapter 12, where he describes the assembly at Sinai, Exodus 19 and 20, and the amazing blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and everything else, so that even if a beast had approached the mountain, it would be stoned. Such a terrifying sight. And then he says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly, the gathering of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. <laughs> in other words, you know in the hymn, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ our Lord. She is his new creation through water and the word. It has that, um, it has that wonderful line, and mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. What is that referring to? It's actually referring to the fact that when we assemble as the people of God, and perhaps peculiarly when we share in the Lord's Supper, but that's for another discussion, our communion is not simply with the people around us in the pews, but our communion is with those who have been gathered into the very nearer presence of Christ himself. That's why when we sing the song, angels, help us to adore him. You behold him face to face. We need your help. You can't get that in worship by the best um, well-meaning individual trying to cajole us all the time. No, we acknowledge that our hearts are stony. They need to be enlivened, quickened by the word of God through the spirit of God. And of course, the ultimate gathering is described by John in Revelation 7, which is where it's all heading, isn't it? 
And John says, and I saw a company that nobody could number. He says, actually, there was 144,000, and then there was a great multitude that no one could number. That's a question for Dr. Carson. But for me, <laughs> it's simply to point out, it's simply to point out that the assembly will be absolutely as God intends. It will actually be a perfect number. It, from a human perspective, it will look like an unruly number. But there'll be no empty seats. There'll be no no-shows. You won't be able to pick up a ticket at the door that somebody didn't show up. Because when God assembles his people, he assembles his people. And John anticipated that day. And he described those who were there. Because the questioner comes and says, and who are these people in this group? And he says, well, they are the ones who have been cleansed. And they are the ones who have been clothed. Cleansed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Clothed with the robe of his righteousness. And when we assemble, those elements are present, aren't they? I have in my notes, somebody said it, I don't know who said it, but I found it helpful because I identify with it. When I look upon myself, I see nothing but emptiness and weakness. But when I look upon Christ, I see nothing but fullness and sufficiency. And you bring yourself into worship on the Lord's day. You kick the cat. You jammed your fingers in the door. You decided you didn't want to witness to anybody, even the person sitting next to you on the plane. You weren't very nice to your wife. You were worse to your kids. And there's some fellow standing up there inviting you to start by singing, I just want to praise you. Lift my hands. And you're going, are you kidding me? You want, you want me to sing the song? Given my heart? It goes like this. I don't want to be here. I wish I was home watching soccer. Oh. So let's be honest. When I look at myself, I see only weakness and emptiness. I need to be assembled by God under God's word. And that's why when we gather with God's people on the Lord's day, keep in mind, let us keep in mind, that just as I as a father want always to create opportunities to gather my entire family together, my children, my grandchildren, I, I, have, a, I have a genuine desire to make as many of those gatherings happen as possible. And in the same way, our Heavenly Father longs, longs to have his people gathered to him and to one another. And when we do so, we have to be absolutely clear. And I quote Ash, whom I mentioned earlier, we need to be absolutely clear that the Word of God is the driving force. The Word of God is the driving force that shapes authentic local church life. And unless our first desire when we gather is to hear and to heed the voice of God in his word, then we have missed the foundation point of church entirely. You think about it in Calvin's Geneva. He preached every day. Every day. Every lunchtime. Paul in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Every day. What is the state of conservative evangelicalism in America? 
just drive through communities and look for even a dim light on as the evening shadows fall over apparently vibrant congregations that have decided that they've had enough by lunchtime. Really? How pleased and blessed was I to hear the people cry, come, let us seek our God today. And yes, with a cheerful zeal, we haste to Zion's hill, and there our vows and homage pay. Zion, thrice happy place, adorned with wondrous grace. There my friends, my family dwell. You, in this congregation, enjoy the great privilege of assembling under the word of God. Seize every opportunity that comes your way. And remember that the church in Ephesus had the best preacher in the world after Jesus himself. And there's pretty well no church in Ephesus today. Father, we are humbled before the truth of your word. It cuts home. And I just pray that uh, your word will just fulfill its purposes. Grant that that which is unhelpful or untrue or even unkind, Lord, may be banished from our reckoning. And uh, take uh, our bread as we cast it on the waters and uh, fulfill your plans. For we pray humbly in Jesus' name. Amen.